Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, Joe Biden in Britain, promising to rebuild America's relations with the world. The United States is back, and democracies of the world are standing together to tackle the toughest challenges. But how will the president handle face-to-face talks with Vladimir Putin? We've an exclusive report from a huge exercise helping British troops to prepare to fight alongside their American partners. We are never, ever, ever going to fight alone. I mean, we're not. We're going to fight with our partners. Uh, and the only way you are able to fight with your partners is to build relationships. And what can the forces do to help tackle the climate crisis? How do we integrate climate change into defense and security strategy? It's great to say it. Everyone's saying it now, but now we actually have to do it. President Biden is in the UK ahead of the G7 summit in Cornwall, his first big face-to-face meeting with other world leaders since winning the White House. He flew into RAF Mildenhall in Suffolk, telling hundreds of US Air Force personnel there he had a message for the rest of the world. We're going to make it clear that the United States is back and democracies of the world are standing together to tackle the toughest challenges and the issues that matter most to our future that we're committed to leading with strength, defending our values, and delivering for our people. The G7 summit is followed by a gathering of NATO leaders. But after his predecessor questioned the relevance of the alliance, Mr Biden wants its members to be in no doubt he takes a different view. In Brussels, I'll make it clear to the United States' commitment to our NATO alliance in Article 5 is rock solid. It's a sacred obligation we have. Under Article 5. The NATO summit has some big issues to address, not least the future role of the alliance. And as Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg warns, NATO needs to work out how to handle rival powers like Russia and China. China will soon have the biggest economy in the world. They already have the, sec- the second largest defense budget, the biggest navy. They are investing heavily in uh, advanced military capabilities and they don't share our values. Julie Norman is the Deputy Director of the Centre on US Politics at University College London. She told James Hurst this is a hugely important week for the President. It's his very first overseas visit that has, of course, probably been delayed by COVID. And so he's really using this as his first opportunity to lay out his foreign policy to engage one-on-one with allies and, importantly, with the G7, with the EU and with NATO. And it's not just the beginning of Biden's foreign policy, but also really trying to mark this as a shift from the Trump administration in terms of re-engaging with allies, uh, reaffirming commitments to multilateralism, and kind of marking a break from the past, if you will. What does Joe Biden want to get from this trip? First and foremost, again, he's just trying to reset the tone of international relations and really express the message that America is back that the U.S. is ready to engage with allies again, to be a world leader on everything ranging from climate change to the pandemic to other uh, other just hot topic issues. So really just projecting that message is first and foremost on his agenda. It's a pretty huge week. At the end of it all, are things going to be any different? It's important to look at a week like this and have fair expectations. It's important that these meetings are happening. It's important for... Biden, again, really actually coming out and setting his foreign policy agenda on the world stage. It's also important for 
world leaders more broadly in terms of having a face-to-face -face summit after two years of really quite limited or no interactions because of COVID. And there are actual real pressing things that the summit will need to be addressing, especially in terms of global vaccine rollout and economic recovery. So there's, there's actual issues this year that I think matter and that everyone wants to see movement on aside from just the normal photo ops and handshakes. And that is important to note. In terms of these larger, more ongoing issues, again, it's very rare for a summit like this to solve any of those issues, to make any kinds of major changes. But this is what diplomacy usually looks like, is these very small incremental steps. It's important to keep the face-to-face -face engagements going between allies and even between adversaries, and in the case of Biden and Putin. And in some ways, this is, again, kind of just restoring that sense of old school international relations and diplomacy to some degree that many felt was lost under the last four years uh, of US leadership. So it is important to reset that. And again, that in itself should not be undervalued, but we should also be realistic that you know, one week and one summit is not going to turn the tide on many global issues. Well, let's speak to Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, and Michael, after four fairly traumatic years for NATO members confronted with Donald Trump, presumably there'll be some relief at meeting a US president who seems more committed to international alliances. Yes, I mean, President Biden's made it very clear that he is an old-fashioned transatlanticist in that respect, so they'll all be relieved when they meet him on Monday and Tuesday next week. But they shouldn't be too relaxed because President Biden's team have made it very clear that they expect the Europeans to do more. They're not going to sink back into the old complacent view that they, the Europeans do enough and we can't really expect them to do too much. So I think they will find Biden himself easy to get on with, but his policy and his team will be really quite tough and they've got to they've got to be prepared for that. And also, I mean, Europe is not in particularly good shape at the moment in terms of the authority of its leaders. You know, we've got our own issues in the UK. The German leader, Angela Merkel, is retiring in September. There'll be elections there. Mr. Macron is struggling to hold on to power. Italy is, is in a, a, a deeply divided um, coalition. So none of the Europeans are really in good shape to speak authoritatively to the Americans. So I think the, the subtext of what will happen on Monday and Tuesday may well be uh, attempts to really find something that they can agree on and take forward as a big project. And how important is the NATO 2030 plan? Is it just a rebrand or is it a more significant moment for the alliance, do you think? Well, in a sense, it is a rebrand, um, but it's going to be infused with this sense, and this has come out of the United States very clearly from their Technical Innovation Center, run by Eric Schmidt, incidentally, the, the Google man on behalf of the president, that the, the alliance has got to take AI and computing and cyber and robotics much, much more seriously. They've got to accelerate their military transformation. So in a sense, the demand will be that NATO has got to embark explicitly on the journey that Britain has embarked upon with the integrated review. So we've all got to do it. It's not good enough for just Britain or even Britain and France to do it. NATO as a whole has got to make 2030 a proper mark for transformed forces. Because, said the Americans, the Chinese are already well ahead of us, and we've got to be very careful about that. There's also a lot of talk of resilience, things like protecting 5G and undersea cables. Is this NATO evolving from being a military alliance to a security one? 
Yes, uh, all the NATO countries have got to worry about their own resilience, uh, just as we are in the United Kingdom, and the COVID pandemic has proved how much countries have got to look after their resilience, and that we're looking, we're all looking at our supply chain vulnerabilities. But there are certain things, like undersea cables, that matter to all of us and are, in effect, a NATO responsibility. So I suspect that we'll hear a lot more um, next week about satellites, the vulnerability of satellites that NATO needs, and the vulnerability of undersea cables. And I would expect the alliance to have something fairly specific to say about those things. As if a G7 gathering and a NATO summit weren't enough, after that, Joe Biden heads to Geneva for face-to-face talks with Vladimir Putin. It is, according to the White House, a chance to restore predictability and stability to US-Russia relations. But Mr Biden says he has a lot to tell Mr Putin. I'm going to communicate that there are consequences for violating the sovereignty of democracies in the United States, in Europe and elsewhere. I'm going to be clear that the transatlantic alliance will remain vital, a vital source of strength for the UK, Europe and the United States. So what can we expect? Well, joining me now is Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Karen, President Biden has spoken about the need to lower the temperature with Moscow, while also saying Russia will pay a price for trying to interfere in US elections. How do you think this first face-to-face meeting will go? Not only is he trying to lower the tone, but then, as you say, there are cyber attacks, there were interference in the U.S. elections, imprisonment of Alexei Navalny. So it's hard to say how that'll go. On the other hand, Biden is a real old-fashioned diplomat. He believes in conversations. He believes in relationships. I don't think he thinks he alone can solve these problems, but he, he believes that relationships matter to getting things done. And so I think they will have a heart-to-heart Uh, There won't be any surprises for Putin. And the question will be, how how do they handle it going forward? Don't forget, they've known each other for many, many years as well. So it's not starting a new relationship, it's rekindling an older one. So what are the relationships or the view from the Kremlin of Joe Biden? Hard to ever predict what is on Putin's mind. But I think at the end of the day, the Russians will be pleased to be taken seriously as a partner. So, uh, you know, As with China, Russia is a partner, but it's also a competitor and it's also a foe in many ways. And that's a complicated uh, relationship to manage for diplomats because you need to push back uh, on times when it really matters. And you also need to work together on issues like climate change or the pandemic. And there are times when, you know, on these cyber attacks when they need to push back very hard. The predictability is really important here. And that's something we lacked during four years of Trump, there was no predictability at all. And I think if partners and competitors know what the repercussions are and the U.S. follows through on threats, then then we have a bit more stability out there. So you say that the U.S. takes Russia seriously, but some people uh, are of the view that the U.S. sees Russia more as an irritant and, and China is the real threat. Look, they're both threats in different ways. China is an enormous economy and it's catching up militarily, but Russia still has nuclear weapons and it can cause significant damage, as we've seen. So Russia does need to be taken seriously, but in a different way. They're just different countries. They're different types of threats. And I don't think that the U.S. has found the right formula for both. Uh, In the past, I think the mistaken assumption the U.S. has made is that if we deal with these countries uh, in a more open way, if we open up to these countries, they will become more democratic and respect human rights and be more like us. Well, now we know that's not the case. And so they need a more 
bespoke policy. And that's not always so simple to communicate to the public. This is Zitrap. We will never fight alone. The message from the head of U.S. Army Forces Command on the relationship between America and the U.K. Four-star General Michael Garrett was speaking as he supervised one of the biggest military exercises to take place anywhere in the world this year. It's seen the Welsh cavalry head to America's deep south. Sean Greszczak has this exclusive report. This is the sound of the latest battle group at Fort Polk in Louisiana. Let's go, let's go! Soldiers being put through their paces and working with their US counterparts are the Welsh cavalry. Major James Curry is officer commanding A Squadron, first the Queen's Dragoon Guards. There is a special relationship obviously between us, us and the US and especially as NATO, the cornerstone of our defence in Europe. Um, it's absolutely vital we learn these lessons. A, it's really fun. Uh, working with these guys and they have a lot of assets they can throw at things a really well resourced exercise uh, and b just those small little lessons of interoperability will allow us if we do if the balloon does go up we'll be able to win that first fight because we've already integrated them uh, through exercises like this each day a moment to reflect millions of soldiers across the decades have been sent here to be tested and prepared for combat They call it forging the warrior spirit. Deep in the heart of a state that is home to swamps, tough terrain, all weathers and alligators, there is a huge operation here at Fort Polk as each rotation of soldiers passes through. Such is the scale and complexity of what happens here, it takes 300 days to plan each exercise. The training area is vast and spans 90,000 acres. So we're just about to go and see the uh, deputy commander of the operations group here at Fort Polk. He knows everything there is to know about exercise rattlesnake. Hey, Sean, how are you? I'm meeting Colonel Edward Twiddell. He's going to give me a history lesson and explain how and why Louisiana has such important roots for the training of US soldiers. As the United States began to gear up for World War II to enter World War II, um, General Marshall realized, hey, you know, the last thing that we want to do is, is learn the lessons that are going to be associated with this in combat with a very capable German force. So uh, he devised what became known as the Louisiana Maneuvers and, and literally uh, brought full army groups down here uh, and, and ran them um, through the area that we, we are we're currently in. These are the umpires. Here at the umpire school, they learn the rules whereby they will decide the outcome of the battles they will soon observe. Throughout the decades, different fake scenarios are devised to challenge the troops. Then they're assessed and told what mistakes to avoid when on the battlefield for real. The exercise is now at its height and has attracted a very high-profile visitor, the head of United States Army Forces Command. Four-star commanding general Michael Garrett arrives to take a look for himself and we're granted a rare chance to interview him. My whole career, uh, when I think about partners, when I think about units that we've worked with, you know, the first unit that always comes to mind are UK partners. Our relationship and our history goes way beyond you know, uh, the time that I have, I've had in the Army. You know, we are never, ever, ever going to fight alone. I mean, we're not. We're going to fight with our partners. Uh, and the only way you are able to fight with your partners is to build relationships. 
And so, you know, what you have here are, you know, you have relationship building 101, right? So you have young soldiers from, uh, you know, the UK, you have young American soldiers. And what they get to do is they get to, to meet one another. Uh, they get to look at each other's kit. It's an impression and it's a lasting impression. You know, if I think about uh, the people that I've dealt with uh, over the years, um, you know, many times I had worked with them before. And that's what we're really trying to get here. We're trying to, you know, train together so that uh, we know each other a little bit better uh, when we have to fight together. We are in the United States, and I think globally, um, we're spending more time talking about multi-domain operations. And, and in our Army, uh, in our military, you know, it is a concept that we are refining. The domains are everything from space to subsurface, right? You know, we're going to be contested in each of those environments. We've got to be able to fight in each of those environments. We need to be able to understand uh, what each other's capabilities are uh, in those environments. You know, the British have uh, capabilities and rules that allow them to do things that are easier than we can do, right? I mean, the British have uh, unique capabilities uh, in some cases that uh, exceed our own uh, and vice versa. And so, you know, these exercises help us at the, uh, you know, the uh, operational level of war, but, but the, this is really foundational level training. And as I said before, you know, this is where you have, you know, young soldiers, uh, young officers, uh, where they're gaining their first impression of each other right here. Uh, and that first impression has to be good because it's a lasting one you know, for both of them. And that's the whole point of this place, and it's why the latest rotation of more than 5,000 soldiers are now doing the modern-day equivalent. Sean Grezchek, Forces News, Fort Polk, Louisiana. We're three months away from the deadline set by President Biden for remaining U.S. forces to leave Afghanistan. But U.S. officials have suggested the withdrawal is far ahead of that schedule. International troops could be out of the country by the middle of July. It potentially leaves Afghanistan's military without vital support as the Taliban steps up its attacks. So what has actually been achieved in the last 20 years? U.S. Army General Scott Miller, commander of NATO's Resolute Support Mission. You know, I think as we take a look at this thing, uh, history is going to write this story. The uh, objectives that, that we, what we set out, uh, I think they'll be evaluated. And I think we'll, uh, we really need to take a really honest look at the things that we did not do as well as we wanted to. Uh, certainly there were some, some victories along the way. Um, but I think history will judge this and the future will uh, tell the rest of the story. Tobias Elwood chairs the Commons Defence Select Committee and this week he told a conference organised by Rusi of his fears for Afghanistan's future. The optimist to me says there's going to be some talks and uh, we're going to get some reconciliation. I'm afraid the more likely scenario is as the withdrawal uh, becomes more evident, the Taliban will get more aggressive and uh, we're going to see more attacks which will usher an expedited retreat, very sad and disappointed as to where we are today. And the international community have so many lessons to learn. Well, let's turn to Dr. Karen von Hippel again. Uh, Karen, Tobias Elwood says we're unlikely to learn those lessons, in part because the UK government is reluctant to stage an Iraq-style inquiry into events in Afghanistan. I mean, look, those inquiries can be helpful, but they also take a very long time. We're not very good at learning lessons. He's absolutely right about that. And there are a lot of reasons why we're not good at learning lessons. Uh, and certainly everyone is concerned about what's going to happen in Afghanistan. And you have the Taliban, which has just 
completely opposed values to ours, uh, and they're threatening to take over the country again. And so, you know, he's absolutely right that we should all be very concerned about what might happen. And reports from the US suggest the Pentagon is drawing up plans to launch airstrikes if there was a risk of Kabul falling to the Taliban. But that seems to be as far as future intervention will go. Yeah, look, it's hard to say. I mean, I, you know, America is famous for saying it's going to do one thing and then it gets dragged back into these types of conflicts. Uh, but I do think this time they will likely try to do airstrikes only in extremists. But, you know, other allies can also step up to the plate. Uh, just if the U.S. withdraws, it doesn't mean other allies can't do more. And I think Rory Stewart made that point at an event we had at Rusi a while back that you know, the U.K. could have said, well, we are going to stay in these numbers and we're going to convince other allies to do so. But the fact that everyone just followed the U.S. and, and left right away, it's, it's certainly not a good sign. The Taliban hasn't had to abandon its aims or its weapons in return for the withdrawal of international troops. Can you understand why people would look at this and wonder whether everything that's happened in the last 20 years was for nothing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the US also needs to learn the lessons from these complicated, long engagements. And when you change political leaders as often as, as the US and the UK have, Throughout that very long war, uh, each leader comes in and wants to do it in a different way. The objectives changed so many times. We were there to uh, have a light footprint. We were there to eradicate drugs. We were there to build a democracy. It was never entirely clear why we were there. And we certainly didn't have the same objectives throughout the campaign. And so it's, it, it's no wonder that, that many of us are confused about what exactly we did over there in the last 20 years. And does this all point to a wider reluctance, do you think, on the part of the West to intervene in this way elsewhere in the future? Certainly for the immediate future, but there is a long history of uh, failures uh, followed by periods of retrenchment, followed by interference again that goes better. I don't think it'll spell the end of liberal interventionism in the future. I'm not sure we'll we'll be any better at it (laughs) in the future either. Dr. Karen von Hippel, thank you very much for your time today. Of all the other big problems on his plate, President Biden has insisted the biggest single security threat is the growing impact of climate change. Now, the MOD's top climate change advisor has said lives could be saved in any future war by the military going green. Those comments came at the launch of a landmark report into global climate security, as Simon Newton explains. Authored by a respected US think tank, the World Climate and Security Report makes stark reading. The world, it says, faces a climate catastrophe unless action is taken, and militaries worldwide need to both prepare and adapt, drastically lowering their own emissions, while also readying themselves for increasing numbers of global crises. Sherry Goodman is Secretary-General of the International Council on Climate Security and a former Deputy Undersecretary of Defence with the US government. Militaries can lead by example. They can lead by example and use their buying power because, for example, in the US, the Department of Defense leases 165,000 tactical vehicles annually. And if it electrifies most of that fleet, that will help towards nationwide goals of setting up charging stations and using its buying power Uh, to lead much-needed change. The report highlights several key risks facing militaries worldwide as a result of climate change. It says security threats driven by global warming are on the rise, with some regions, parts of Asia for instance, facing new disasters before they fully recovered from previous ones. 
Militaries, it predicts, will be increasingly overstretched as climate change intensifies. And as the world faces more and more extreme weather events, countries will increasingly rely on the military as first responders. And the report warns that the military's infrastructure, its bases and training areas are also threatened by the effects of global warming. Things like flooding and extreme temperatures potentially reducing their state of readiness. Sherry Goodman again. And that's why when we talk about so importantly, how do we integrate climate change into defense and security strategy? It's great to say it. Everyone's saying it now, but now we actually have to do it. Earlier this year, the MOD published its strategy on climate change and sustainability. The author of that report, Lieutenant General Richard Nugy, told the launch seminar that going green, giving Ford operating bases the ability to generate their own power, for instance, could actually save lives on the battlefield. The US military lost somewhere between two and 3,000 soldiers through its logistic resupplies in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we in the UK lost our most senior officer in a logistic resupply patrol. That sort of thing, if you reduce the number of logistic resupplies, will allow the infantry to go and do other things. The general said rising sea temperatures were another problem facing navies worldwide. Sensors on submarines could be affected by changes to the viscosity of the sea, the balance between fresh and salt water, and the engines on modern warships would also struggle to cope. The surface sea temperatures that our scientists are predicting will be in the Gulf in the summer in about 20 years' time will preclude our ability to operate our ships uh, with their current engine. Ships, uh, as everybody knows, uses the cold seawater to cool their engines. Well, already we're beginning to have problems on really hot days with those engines cutting out at a, at a lower speed than we would anticipate and wish. We need to find another way of cooling those engines. As part of its commitment to climate change, the MOD has introduced a new procurement rule, the first of its kind anywhere in the world. Any firm bidding for a contract over £5 million now has to show evidence of a net zero strategy. General Nugy said the need to tackle global warming is now impacting every area of UK defence. For example, at one of our training areas in Cyprus, in Akrotiri, we're anticipating, as opposed to losing 40% of our time for the training area to be too hot to train, uh, we're looking at 100% of our time uh, in the summer not being able to train there uh, because it's just too hot for our people. Next week, NATO leaders meet in Brussels. Climate change expected for the first time to be high on the agenda. Part of a move the authors of this report hope will bring concrete action and embed the military's climate commitments into the DNA of defence. Simon Newton with that report. Finally today, this past week saw the 77th anniversary of the D-Day landings, marked under coronavirus lockdowns, which meant veterans weren't able to travel to France to see the unveiling of the British Normandy Memorial. Instead, they gathered at the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire to remember the more than 22,000 under British command lost on D-Day and the subsequent Battle of Normandy. Only a few of them had ever been in combat. But when the test came, when freedom had to be fought for or abandoned, they fought. They were soldiers of democracy. They were the men of D-Day, and to them we owe our freedom. This memorial is so important. It's the first time, the only time, that all 22,442 
service people under British command who fought and lost their lives in the Normandy campaign, their names have been brought together. And that's really important for the surviving veterans to see the names of their comrades, for the families of those who fought and fell, and I think for generations to come. May God bless our veterans, the families, and all those who paid the ultimate sacrifice as a result of the operations around D-Day and during the Battle of Normandy. D-Day brought us hope. It was a day I won't forget. I am proud to do my part in ensuring that memory of what so many did on that day is kept alive. D-Day veteran Gilbert Clark and before him the Prince of Wales, General Lord Dannett and another veteran, Bernard Morgan. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, the veterans couldn't be in Normandy but we finally have a memorial for future generations to remember what happened there in 1944. Yes, and I think it's very appropriate because we all know that it ended happily, it, it was a successful invasion. I think we tend to forget not just the, the losses on that day and the days afterwards, the 22,000 people, but also the risks that they took. It was incredibly risky what they were doing. They had to get 150,000 men onto the beaches, to their beachheads in a day, and if they were still there the following day, then it would work. But to be honest, that first day was unbelievably risky. The number of things, inevitably, which went wrong, the number of things that only half worked, the number of things that, that went right for the wrong reasons, unbelievable. And all those servicemen that we honour were putting their lives on the line for a massive, massive risk that the Allies were taking. And we forget that because we won the war. But it almost went wrong. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Professor Michael Clark, to Dr. Karen von Hippel, and to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.